Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Stand for the reading of God's Word. Once again, we're turning to John chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 19 through 27. John 10, 19 to 27, this is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. The demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you still speak to your people, you speak to the world through your word. And so we ask, Father, being sinful uh, creatures, Lord, that you would give us understanding of this word by your spirit, that you would help us, that you would illumine our minds and our hearts, and Father, that we would be humble as we approach your word, that we would be teachable. Forgive us for how we are so unteachable, so intractable at times. Father, I pray that this day would not be one of those days, that we would yield and that you would be pleased by our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So we're back at the scene of Jesus interacting with Jews and Jesus interacting with the Pharisees, as it feels like we've been doing since the Uh, very early parts of the Gospel of John. And one of the themes, very simple theme of the Gospel of John that we've seen repeatedly is belief and unbelief, right? Belief and unbelief, those who believe, those who do not believe. And we see that again in this passage. And um, Jesus has laid out to us this parable of the Good Shepherd and he's, he's taught us about himself, he being the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and then describes these, uh, these hired hands, these hirelings, those who do not serve the sheep but serve themselves. And he's made, uh, he's once again, it doesn't seem that he can ever go any d- different direction, he's once again made the Pharisees angry. Um. With these words in John 10, it was another, another occasion where we see that Jesus was appointed for the rising 
and the falling of many. That's what he was appointed for, the rising and the falling of many. Some observed what Jesus did. They saw all these miracles. They heard his words. They saw it and attributed his power, not to God, but to demons. They attributed his power not to God, but to demons or a malfunctioning brain. Insanity. Only, only somebody insane, only a raving lunatic could say the things that Jesus has said. Um, and, and those that held that view that Jesus was not in his right mind or that he had a demon thought it ridiculous that people would even give him the time of the day, that he would, that he would have their ear, that he would have their attention. Um, but seriously entertaining someone who is indeed insane is pretty insane. Um, if, you've ever, if you've ever talked to people who are out of their mind, if you've ever had to visit the psych ward in the hospital and talk with somebody who is not in their right mind for whatever reason, uh, to take their expression seriously would make you insane, right? It just, it, it can't be taken seriously. There is such a thing as a sick mind. There is such a thing as demon possession. There is such a thing as, as um, someone not being in their right mind. And that's what they thought of Jesus. Dude needs to be locked up in the loony bin with padded walls. Even his family thought that. Others, though, refused that negative assessment, right? As they heard what he said, they were convicted that his words were not the insane ravings of some, some kind of madman. And, and further, after they observed his miracles, remember, we're just after he heals the man who was born blind. They conclude that that kind of power is not from demons. Demons don't do that. Demons don't bless with sight, right? Demons don't do that. And so they conclude that this, is, this power is from God. Clearly, this is from God, not from demons. And so what we see once again, and what you undoubtedly see in your own lives, is that Jesus divides people. Jesus is constantly dividing people. I've seen Jesus divide spouses. I've seen that a lot. Jesus dividing husband and wife. I've seen Jesus divide children and parents. Parents and children. I've seen Jesus divide siblings. I've seen, you know, the, the reason Jesus divides is his claims are incredibly huge. Right? What Jesus said, what he did is huge and incredibly important, right? Many, many have tried to diminish Jesus' claims, right? Um, liberals try to deny the things that Jesus claimed or what he meant when he was claiming them, right? In the hope, and, and, and liberals always do that in the hope that we need the lowest common denominator so we can maintain unity. 
And so they make Jesus' words not mean what they seem to mean on face value. And his miracles were, were who knows what those were. There's got to be some natural explanation for those. And they do that because they've made a God of unity. They've made an idol of unity. And, and it's a unity, but it's not unity based on anything that's important. Unity is important, and there is unity, but that kind of unity based upon no doctrine and least common denominators is not unity that is worth anything. And so many try to diminish Jesus in the hope of maintaining unity. It's easier for parents and children, for spouse, spouses, for siblings to stay unified if Jesus is just a man who said some wise things that gets our attention for two hours on a Sunday, but doesn't really demand anything more than that. And so many people choose to go that route just so they can maintain some sort of peace with those around them. The reason people divide over the words of Jesus Christ is that Jesus makes no bones about the fact no bones about the fact that he is God. He has always been God. And that he was sent by his father with whom he is one to save sinners. One can't read the gospels and conclude that Jesus said merely some helpful things for each of us to consider about our lives. Right? I mean, Joel Osteen has tried to convince many people of that, and no one believes him. Right? It's not just helpful things that Jesus came down. No, his claims were way beyond helpful. They were astonishing. Right? They were the kind of words that can only be believed by those whose minds have been unlocked by the Holy Spirit, by God himself. Those are the only who, who will believe his words because they're so outlandish. Look at the last words he said in the previous passage. I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. What man can say such things, right? What man can say things like that? No one has authority over their own life. If there's anything we know, it's we don't, we don't have authority. We don't know when we're going to die. And, and beyond that, no one can take up his life again after he dies. I mean, that, that's where we're all impotent. And here Jesus is making that claim, right? And he speaks of his father as if, as if he has been with God in heaven. Like he's been there, like he knows this Father. Jesus always, therefore, in all the things he says, if you're actually going to his word and examining what he said, forces a decision in anyone who reads the accounts. He forces a decision. Right? The only people who think they can maintain unity between pagans and Christians have to scrupulously avoid looking at what Jesus said. Which is, which is hilarious. 
Because that's where Jesus told us to look, to know about who he was. Jesus divides churches. Did you know that? Jesus divides churches. Think of the crowd that is observing the, the words and works of Jesus. They're all professing believers. You realize that? They're all professing believers. They are the Jews who claim Abraham as their father. And when the Messiah comes among them, guess what? Guess what? The hypocrisy of many of them is exposed. It is laid open. Right? That often happens when Jesus Christ is preached for the first time in a church. Perhaps there was a pastor right, who was, who was happy to flatter his people. Right? A, a pastor who is happy or felt he was obligated to flatter his people and not serve as a good shepherd, then that pastor leaves or dies, and the next pastor comes in, and that pastor thinks his task is to preach Jesus Christ in season and out of season, the whole counsel of God. And guess what happens? Guess what happens when, when that, that pastor comes in? Well, there's a division in that church. Isn't there? There's a division in that church between those who liked the flattery of the old pastor and those who know they need shepherding and not flattery. The light of Christ, the ministry of the word, exposes the hypocrisy of many, many who profess faith. Um, but believed in their own pride, right? The kind of pride that expected smooth and flowery, safe, safe words from their pastor each Sunday. And they claim to be the people of God even while they reject his word. Think of the time of the Reformation. Think of the time of the Reformation. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, Right, are going about the world doing what? Preaching the word of God. And what's happening? The church is dividing. The church is, is, is splitting up. Okay, many people hear what they are saying, this, this gospel that they're preaching, and, and they're like, wow, that, that accords with what Jesus said. That, that's, that's what God's word says. Others, like the Roman Catholic cardinals, are continually throwing what accusation against the reformers? They're schismatics. Look at these schismatics. They're, they're intentionally trying, just for the delight of division, to split the church. That they are dividing the church by their sinful, supposedly heretical views, but the reformers were not schismatics. They were preaching God's word. They preached God's word. Right? They were simply preaching God's word, and that word divided the church between the hypocrites who preferred their own filthy merit and the Christians who were, who, who were desperate for Christ's merit. It exposed the hypocrisy of some. 
There's this great quote of Luther. Luther said this. He said, what, what is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? Right? He's objecting to the fact that people call the church Lutherans. I simply, listen to this, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word, Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. The word divided the world. The word divided the church. The word still divides the world. The word still divides the church. Calvin, uh, I can't quote Calvin without, or quote Luther without quoting Calvin. That just doesn't seem right. Calvin in his commentary on these verses reflects on this division. He writes, um, thus the wickedness of many is still the reason why the church is troubled by divisions. And why contentions are kindled. Yet those who disturb the peace throw the blame on us and call us schismatics. For the principal charge which the papists bring against us is that our doctrine has shaken the tranquility of the church. Yet the truth is that if they would yield submissively to Christ and give their support to the truth, all the commotions would immediately be allayed. But when they utter murmurs and complaints against Christ and will not allow us to be at rest on any other condition than that the truth of God shall be extinguished and that Christ shall be banished from his kingdom, they have no right to accuse us of the crime of schism, for it is on themselves, as every person sees that this crime ought to be charged. We ought to be deeply grieved that the church is torn by divisions arising among those who profess the same religion. But it is better that there are some who separate themselves from the wicked to be united to Christ their head than that all should be of one mind in despising God. Consequently, when schisms arise, we ought to inquire who they are that revolt from God and from his pure doctrine. Take that, papists. Jesus said this that we must not forget, right? We're just simply thinking about the fact that a division occurred among the Jews by Jesus' words, right? Um, Think about this. Jesus said this that we must not forget. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father. And a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies, what does it say? Will be what? The members of his own household. Jesus said that? Jesus came to bring division? He came to bring a sword? He would split up households? How dare he? No southern home is going to split away from mama. Not a chance. 
But that's precisely what he said. He said, it is wickedness if you adhere to your mama and forsake him. There is much, now, division comes about by many means, right? There is much division that is caused in your life by your stupidity, your selfishness, and your sin. Okay? There's a lot of that. That sort of division, bad. Right? Don't be dumb. Don't be dumb. But there is other division that is, frankly, caused by our righteousness. It's caused because we want to be be loyal to Jesus Christ, and the division will come. Show some devotion to Christ, and you may set your entire family against you. Right? Share the word of God at a choice moment at a family meal, and you begin to see where the fault lines are in your family. Share the word, and you will lose friends. You will lose friends. Friends that you've had whose love was not cemented by piety or cemented by a, a, a love for God. And so do we have faith for that kind of division? Do you, do you and I have faith for that kind of division? Do we have faith to own Jesus' words and live accordingly? Do we always, are you like me, do you always pull your punches? Hide your light under a bushel. Withdraw your confession. Cower in fear. Deny him as as Peter did to strangers. Or is it simply an unwillingness to to divide for right reason? You've made an idol of unity. And you will not divide even if Jesus came down and told you to your face that you need to divide. We'd rather be enemies with Christ, it seems, than be enemies with the members of our own households. That will not pay off. That will not be good. That will not be good for your soul. It won't be good for your family. Our faith is so negotiable, isn't it? I just hate it when I think my faith is so negotiable that I can, that right now, Jesus, I got to turn it off because if I do, man, it's going to set off a bomb. We just never want to be the savior of death to anyone, do we? And, And God forgive us. God forgive us for the weakness of our confession. And so let me conclude by saying on this section of the passage that division is not all bad. Division is not all bad. Division based upon our faith in God, um, our adherence to his word, our fealty, right? Our loyalty to our King Jesus Christ, it's good. And not only is it good, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. The only reason you may not be experiencing it is, is you're, you're, you're not in the faith. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Oh man, the Apostle Paul writes that. 
faction to the Corinthian church. There must be factions among you so that we can all find out who's approved, who really loves God, who is His and His children. Wow. Now, this isn't a call to be a Christian jerk. Right? Uh, There are so many of those. We don't need any more Christian jerks. Right? Man, get a podcast, get a TV show, and it's like you're injected with jerk sauce. It's simply a call to be faithful. That's all that is. It's a call to be faithful. Be faithful to Christ. If we're faithful to Christ, divisions will come. You don't have to seek them out. You don't have to gun for them. You don't have to do anything other than just be faithful. Right? We don't need to provoke divisions by anything but faithfulness to Christ. Live for Christ and you will find that you are always having... You all Live for Christ and you'll be like, man... I want heaven because everywhere here, I just seem to be fighting. Right? Live for Christ and you'll find you're always having to endure ridicule. You're you're always having to endure hard words. You're always having petty persecution from from the children of the world. And the children of the world who are in the church, especially. Ryle says this, you may even discover that you are thought a fool or a madman on account of your Christianity. Let none of these things move you. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? How much more will they malign the members of his own household? So division will follow you if you are faithful to Christ. You will then, to the one, be an aroma from death to death, and to the other, an aroma of life to life, right? That's the first thing from this text. Everywhere Jesus went, he divided men. Everywhere his faithful children go, they will divide men by his word, okay? Now, onward into the text where we read of Jesus making one of the, uh, I mean, we're going to have to spend... I thought I could get through 39, but there's no way to get through 39. Um, the doctrine of perseverance, Jesus' divinity, the, 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 the personhood of Christ, the oneness of the Father and the Son, I mean, dense passage. But, um, and there's nothing as explicit as his claim to divinity in this passage in any other passage of Scripture. Um, But it seems now, between 19 and 21, between 21 and 22, there's been some passage of time. Um, Because when he healed the blind man, it was the Feast of Tabernacles, and now it's the Feast of Dedication that we're talking about here. And I think there was a three-month gap between those things. And so, um, what is the Feast of Dedication? Well, interestingly enough, it's not mentioned in Scripture. It's not one of those three feasts, those pilgrimage feasts that the men of Israel had to go up to Jerusalem in order to make sacrifices. It is a feast that was instituted by Judas the Maccabee 
in 165 BC to commemorate the purification and rededication of the rebuilt temple after it had been defiled by Antiochus Epiphanes. So you can read about this in the non-canonical book of 1 Maccabees. You can read about it in Josephus' writings. Um, and uh, one of the commentaries described it's, it was a eight-day joyous festival marked by illumination of the dwellings, hence also called the Feast of Lights, um, illumination of the dwellings and family reunions. So it was a get-together of families, um, and it was, uh, you know, you, you got the, the candles out and you illuminated everything. It was not one of those three scriptural pilgrimage feasts that required to travel to Jerusalem. But nonetheless, it would have attracted many to Jerusalem at this time and many to the temple. And that's where Jesus is. Jesus is walking under what's called the portico of Solomon. And that, they say, and they thought, was the only portion of the temple that was original to Solomon's build, right? So it's a, a covered walkway, right? A covered walkway. The general atmosphere at, in the temple and in the um, outskirts of the temple would have been one of celebration. And perhaps because of that, the Jews are feeling a bit confident and willing to take on this Jesus who had said so many provocative things to them. And here Jesus is, happy to find the largest crowd he possibly could in the middle of the temple. And so they cut right to the chase. They're like, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Tell us plainly as if, you know, you know, healing a man born blind isn't plainly telling them something. Um, he has told them previously, we've gone through this already in John's gospel, and they continue to ask the question, why do they continue to ask him, you need to be explicit, are you the Christ? Well, because they don't want to give up their vision of a triumphant king for a suffering servant. They're confused. They don't want to give, they, this, this man is so unimpressive, he couldn't possibly be the Messiah that we want and believe in, right? They don't want to believe in Jesus. And notice Jesus says, I told you, and you do not believe. I've told you. How many times do I have to tell you? I've told you, and you do not believe. Every one of the miracles he performed, not to mention the words he spoke about himself, were testimonies to his Messiahship. But their conception of the Messiah had been perverted over time. Isaiah 53 was not the kind of Messiah they wanted. And so they refused to believe. They attributed his works to the forces of darkness, to demons, and maligned him for what he said about himself. They demand more or different evidence. Perhaps if he had drawn a sword and lopped off the head of one of the nearest Roman authorities, they would have bowed down in reverence. Finally, right? Finally, you're being belligerent in a way that we love. But he does not do that, and even to their disgust, Jesus would submit himself to the Romans to the point of death on a cross. He then says, Jesus says, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You are not of my sheep. 
they evidenced that they were not his sheep because they did not believe. If they were of his sheep, they would have believed. They evidenced that they were not of his sheep. He's just, he's just basing what he's saying upon what he's observing. They haven't believed. You're not of my sheep. That's the evidence that someone is not a sheep of Christ. They don't believe. The reprobate. Now that's a word we don't hear very often anymore, is it? The reprobate does not believe. That is their fundamental disposition. Now, what evidence does someone give that they are his sheep? Does that question even interest you? What evidence can someone give that they are Christ's sheep? Is that, does that interest you? Raise your hand if that question interests you. Okay. It's about 60%. That's interesting. Well, 40% of you can leave. And I'll continue my sermon. Well, maybe 60% can leave. Um, That question should interest you because you should examine your own faith as the Apostle Paul exhorts you to. Right? And it should be the question you are asking about your loved ones, about the souls of those around you, right? This question, how do you know if someone is a child of God, is critical. It should be on your mind uh, every day. And Jesus then gives us the answer in what he says next. He says this, and this is where we'll camp out for the rest of the sermon. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There it is, right there. Uh, Very concise, systematic theology. Um, that's how you know somebody knows Jesus. So first, they hear his voice. It used to be audible in Old Testament times, that voice of God, right? It was audible when Jesus spoke to these crowds. Now, how do we hear God? It's not audible. How do we hear God? And this is how we hear God in the word preached. That's how we hear God today. How do I know this? Well, listen to this from the book of Hebrews that encourages us to hear his voice and not harden our hearts in return. Listen to this passage. It's the chapter chapter 3 in the beginning part of chapter 4 of Hebrews. Listen, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end, therefore, and now a big quote of scripture, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. 
Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they will always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end, while it is said, and then he quotes the same verse again. He's pounding this home. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it, for indeed, We have had good news preached to us. God used to speak audibly. They heard his voice. They hardened their hearts. The the writer of Hebrews, let's call him the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul writes again, Do not harden your hearts if you hear his voice. And then it brings up this idea of preaching. They had the good news preached to us just as they also but they heard but the word they heard did not profit them because it was united by was not united by faith of those who heard for we have believed we who have believed enter that rest just as he said as i swore in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day and god rested on the seventh day from all his works And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Skipping down, he says, he quotes again the same psalm. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and of spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It gets right to the word of God there, right? He goes through all this. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And finally, it ends up at the word of God. And if you hear the word of God, you can also too harden your hearts. You should not harden your hearts toward the word of God. Three times in that passage, that verse from Psalm 95 is quoted, which speaks to hearing the voice of God and not responding with a hard heart. And the passage closes with that glorious definition of the very word of God and its power in us. It is a scalpel dividing the thoughts from thought from thought. It, and the intentions of the heart to 
other intentions of the heart. There are many who hear the word of God and just immediately harden their hearts. Those are the people who will never hear the voice of Jesus, right? But do not follow them. Instead, be willing to hear God speaking in the preaching of his word. Stop resisting what God has given to the world for the spreading of the knowledge of his son whom he loves. He's appointed this crazy method. Stop thinking that the preaching of the Word of God is powerless. Stop thinking that the preaching of the Word of God is powerless because it's a sinful man who is, who is doing it. God spoke through an ass. And so there's hope for Him speaking through me. Hear the voice of the Savior of man in the Word of God when you read it. When you hear it preached, that's the first characteristic of a child of God. They hear the voice of God. They hear the voice of God in his word when it is read and when it is preached. They hear Jesus Christ speaking to them. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? A preacher! Oh, just give me the Bible on audio book. How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good tidings of good things. I guess I could summarize this in this way. God's sheep in hearing become teachable. Teachable particularly about this, their own sinfulness. That's the first thing the Word of God teaches the child of God is how little you are, how terrible you are, how not special you are, how despicably disgusting in the sight of God you really are. Right? And, and they teach, it teaches you about your sinful nature. Pagans, in this sense, remain incorrigible. They will not be taught about their fallen nature. They are never teachable in general. I think that's probably how we could divide between Christians and and unbelievers. One is teachable, one is not. And I think you could sum it up that way. Pagans are never teachable, especially about their own sinful nature and the holiness of God. So to hear the voice of Christ means fundamentally to be teachable. So that's the first thing, hear the voice, they they hear Jesus. Second, to know if you're a child of God, Jesus knows you. Jesus knows the sheep. Second characteristic of a child of God is this, Jesus knows them. I mean, in that, what glory in just contemplating that, no? I mean, the Son of God, Almighty God, the Eternal Son knows His sheep. Right, of course, there's a general sense in which he knows all people, right? He, because he has specifically created every person in their mother's womb, he knows the thoughts of all people. He sees all their actions. He's intimately acquainted with all because he's sovereign over all. He's the sovereign king who providentially reigns over all his creatures, not just believers. And 
But those who don't believe, who don't follow Christ, who refuse to do his Father's will, what will be the charge of God to them? I never knew you. The God who knows all things will say, I never knew you to those who reject his Son. There is a special knowledge of God that he has of his own people, right? It is a knowledge that is infused with affection, with love, right? Ryle, Christ knows his people with a special knowledge of approbation. That means approval, interest, and affection. By the world around them, they are comparatively unknown, uncared for, or despised, but they are never, ever forgotten or overlooked by Christ. He knows them. Spurgeon says this, Our Lord Jesus Christ, though he knows what poor, unworthy ones we are, yet when we shall be brought up before the Lord, before the great white throne, he will confess he knew us. He does know us. We are old acquaintances of his, and he has known us from before the foundation of the world. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he, them he also called. There are riches of grace in this. But more than this, There is the daily knowledge Christ has of you if you're his sheep. He knows your pain. He knows your backaches. He knows your migraines. He knows your numb hands and feet. He knows your temptations. He knows every one of your temptations and and promises to come to your aid when you are tempted. He knows your sins. And died so that you might not be condemned for those sins. He knows your trials. An unbelieving child. A loss that came at a hard time. A diagnosis. A sin unconfessed. Did you know that that's a trial? Leaving your sin unconfessed? Do you know it rots away in you? leads to your bones being unhealthy. You should confess your unconfessed sins. It's a trial. But Jesus knows, he cares, and as a child of his, that he looks on with approval and love and kindness, he will make all things right. You're a citizen of his kingdom, and every citizen of that kingdom gets the attention of the one who dispenses every blessing in this world. He knows your love for him. He knows the grief you have when you feel you have dishonored him. And he embraces you as as the father embraced the prodigal son. He knows you. He knows you. And then finally, the third thing to know, the, the third characteristic to know whether you are a sheep or not. His sheep follow him. His sheep follow him. This means nothing less than they obey him because they trust him to be committed to their eternal good. 
They follow him in that they desire and attempt to be like him, to live like him, right? To love like him, to be righteously indignant against sin, like him, to obey his Father in heaven like he did. They contemplate the providence of God in their lives and don't get flustered and thrown off. They know that what has come about is because of his love and his care and and his desire that they be conformed to his Son. They love what he has appointed for them because they they know his love. They meditate on his word day and night that they might be like trees planted by streams of water. They pursue holiness and seek to ever increase in the knowledge and brotherly kindness and love. Right? They repent when they sin. They reconcile when they've sinned against others. Right? They submit themselves to spiritual authorities because God has appointed them and ordained them for their good. They simply obey Jesus. The sheep of Jesus obey him. It's very simple. So three things by which to answer the question of whether or not you are one of Christ's sheep. Do you hear him? Do you know him? Actually, does he know you? And do you obey him? It's very simple but very deep. Very simple but amazing how few people really care about those questions. It's everlastingly important that you think through those questions, right? I'll close with the words of the Apostle Paul to bring this home. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. There it is. He's telling those who profess their faith, he's telling those who followed Christ to examine themselves in those three little questions. Do you hear him? Does he know you? And do you obey him? Should be things that you think about each and every day. Right?